everybody. Recording live from somewhere. Welcome to the Sickle Cycle Podcast, a monthly conversation about sickle cell disease. I'm your host, Charlotte Curtis. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. O'Henny Frampon, who is well-renowned and a living legend. Dr. Frampon is Director Emeritus of the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's also the president of Sickle Cell Foundation of Ghana. Dr. Frampon, thank you for joining us today from Ghana. Thank you very much. I'm very happy uh, to be able to share uh, events that are leading up to Well Sickle Cell Day with you, and I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity uh, to speak about sickle cell disease to your audience. Oh, thank you. So just to give a little context and background, I first met Dr. Frampon as a child while I was a patient at the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia, which is commonly known as CHOP. I'm amazed about all of your research, your knowledge, especially the history context about sickle cell disease. And so I would like to begin by asking you to describe what is sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease uh, is an inherited disease, or scientists would say it's a genetic disease. The only way for anyone to get sickle cell disease is because they inherited it from both of their parents. Um, It's an important disease uh, because it affects so many people around the world. And all genetic diseases come from the fact that small changes occur in our genes. Most of the changes that we call mutations don't affect a person in any bad way. They're just differences. The same way that we all look different, our noses may look different. All of those things come from mutations. Occasionally, a change in the gene may present a special problem for a person or a special advantage for a person to be able to survive something in the environment. So the change or mutation that actually caused sickle cell disease. As all mutations, they're not purposeful. They just occur. And if you just happen to be in an environment where that particular change could be harmful, then it can cause disease. Or that harm, uh, that change could be helpful. It will give you a survival advantage and that gene will spread in the population because those who have it will be surviving better. Now we think that the change that led to sickle cell disease as we know it occurred about 7,000 years ago, somewhere in the central part of West Africa or central part of Africa. At the time when the Sahara Desert was actually fertile, they had trees and, and, and bushes there. And it was just a change. We also know that uh, the very, 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 virulent disease malaria that has killed millions of children worldwide over the last 10,000 years also started about 10,000 years ago to become a problem when agriculture started, when people started cutting down trees and and growing uh, crops. And so when it rains, water will collect, and these mosquitoes that carry the malaria parasite can breed and produce more of themselves, and then humans get bitten by uh, these mosquitoes, and malaria was there not to kill all these children. It just so happened, just coincidence, that if a child inherited the sickle cell gene from one parent, by the normal version of it, which now we call sickle cell trait, or AS, that child is able to survive malaria better than 
another child who has the normal genes. And so just by chance, this change had given children the advantage of surviving severe malaria. So over thousands of years, as other children are dying from malaria, those who have inherited this gene are surviving to the point where they too will have children. They become adults. So some of their children will inherit that gene. They will have the same advantage over those who don't have the gene. So over generations, the gene will spread in the population. Initially, it will spread among relatives, but over generations, as people move away into farther distances and the spread occurs, now you have people who don't think of themselves as relatives who have inherited that same gene from just one person in which that change occurred. And now non-relatives who bear this gene can marry, they can have children. And it just, just so happens that if a child inherits two copies of this gene, one from each parent, instead of it being an advantage, it becomes a disease, sickle cell disease. So, so if, now, yes, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, so if you have sickle cell disease or if you have the trait, are you able to contract malaria? Yes, you will get malaria. So the mosquitoes that bite and transmit malaria to people bite you, you will get malaria. But the bite alone doesn't give you enough of the malaria parasite to make you sick. The parasite has to grow inside you into millions of copies before you get sick from it. And so if your body doesn't support the growth of the parasite well, then you will get a sick from someone in, in whose body the parasite can grow well. This parasite, malaria parasite, grows in red blood cells. And those who have normal hemoglobin, regular hemoglobin that most people have, when they get malaria, that parasite can grow very fast in their red blood cells, destroy their red blood cells, and that leads eventually to these children being killed. But if you have sickle cell trait, or if you're AS, you can withstand malaria because the parasite doesn't grow as well inside your red blood cells. In fact, your red blood cells can get to a point where they will kill the parasite. So the number of parasites that a child who is AS or has sickle cell trait will, will get from malaria is not as high as the number of parasites from the one who has regular blood. So the one with regular blood will succumb to malaria because they've destroyed too many of their red blood cells. And the one with sickle cell trait will survive the malaria because only a small number of the parasite was inside them. That's the, that's the only difference that this particular genetic mutation gave uh, to people who just happened to live in a place where malaria was becoming a major killer. Well, it's common knowledge that a lot of people of African descent have sickle cell disease. But who else does this disease impact? Yes, now uh, the story is becoming a lot clearer than it was a even a year and a half ago. For almost 35 years, we had been teaching that the same mutation, the change that created this uh, new gene, occurred in at least five places on, on Earth. We thought four of them were in Africa and one was in uh, India, and then it spread from there to other places. But just last year, uh, in March of 2018, a paper was published from the National Institutes of Health in the United States uh, that uh, took all the genetic information now we know about humans and with computer analysis were able to prove that, in fact, the mutation occurred in only one place. So here's a, a mutation that occurred in maybe central West Africa and then spread throughout Africa 
left Africa to go as far as India, throughout all the Middle East, all the Mediterranean countries, and then in the last 400, 500 years, across the Atlantic to the Americas from just one source. So people now who live in all these areas for generations now have had the same gene that originated in just one place. And because malaria has killed so many people around the tropical part of the world, wherever this gene was, it gave people an advantage. And so they survived and the gene would spread because more of their children would survive compared to the others. So now people from all over Africa, all the countries, the Mediterranean areas, throughout the Middle East, going all the way to India, have sickle cell disease. And of course, the Americas through uh, transatlantic slave trade is how most of the gene got here. So it's not just black people. Okay. Do you know how many people have this illness worldwide? Well, it's, it's hard to make a guess, but the estimates have been anywhere from 14 million to about 20 million. To, to be able to say that accurately, you would have to study a large number of people in different countries, watch them over years, so that you have a sense of how many are passing away as the years go by. If you know how many are born with the disease, and if you follow them for a long time, you'll be able to make some estimations about how they're surviving. And then you can use statistics to guess, therefore, how many survivors there may be in the world today. The information we have now is, makes it possible for us to determine how many are being born. But how many are actually living with the disease is much harder because we haven't studied Africa, which is where 80% of the babies born with sickle cell disease are. We cannot say accurately how long Africans are living with sickle cell disease to enable us to make very good esti- estimations as to how many babies survive in the whole world. But it has been anywhere from about 14 to 20 million that may have sickle cell disease at the moment around the world. Is India the largest population that has sickle cell disease or to people no, born with the it? the highest is, is Nigeria. Okay. Nigeria has the highest population. Uh, after Nigeria is Congo DR, a Democratic Republic of Congo. India, they estimate that India is number three and Tanzania is number four. But um, I, I, Nigeria has about 150,000 babies born a year with sickle cell disease. That is far and away the highest. So in different countries where the illness is at, do the symptoms or complications vary? And then if so, in what ways? The disease is basically the same. You know, sickle cell disease has basically two things that go wrong. One is these um, red blood cells that carry the gene. They're making a different uh, protein chemical that we call hemoglobin that binds oxygen. They make a different hemoglobin. And it is that hemoglobin that causes the cell to change its shape and break it down easily. So sickle cell patients all have a lower blood count than normal because their red blood cells get broken down very fast. The blood cells also have a very unfortunate uh, quality of becoming very sticky. So they get stuck in small blood vessels and can block the flow of blood. So blocking the flow of blood causes different kinds of complications in all over the body because blood goes everywhere. And then the anemia for breaking down your blood cells. Now, the most common types of sickle cell disease is when the person has inherited the sickle cell gene from both parents. We call that gene S for sickle. 
And so if you are, have the gene from your father and your mother, we say you are SS. But there are other genes that also help us make different types of hemoglobins, and some of those genes can combine with the S to cause different types of sickle cell disease. Some of those types are milder, and some of them are just as severe as the SS. So depending upon which types are common in different countries, the disease may have a slightly different profile. But basically, they all suffer from the same kinds of symptoms. It may be a little milder, a little more severe. There's no part of the world where sickle cell disease is completely mild. That's what we used to think about India. But as we've learned more, and Indian doctors have been looking at more and more thousands of patients, they realize that they can lose young children with sickle cell disease just as much as we do in Africa. So it's just as severe all over the world. If you're in a place where the disease has better treatment now, you may survive better than the place where there's no good treatment. But it's basically the same. So I want to piggyback a little bit. Um, when did you first learn about sickle cell disease? I had heard the term sickler used to de- describe one of my nephews. Uh, it turned out that he only had a sickle cell trait. But I remember his mother uh, saying that he had a sickle test and it was positive. And so she called, referred to him as, oh, this, my son is a sickler. And when I went to college in the United States, I really didn't know much about it, even though my interest was to become a pediatrician. Sickle cell disease was not uh, something in my mind at all. I had left Ghana without actually knowing the disease. But when I was a college student in my sophomore year, I attended a lecture at the medical school by a Ghanaian doctor who apparently had become quite famous in Africa and outside Africa for sickle cell disease. So because we heard that this Ghanaian doctor was going to give a lecture, a number of our students, African students, walked over to the medical school. And as he was describing sickle cell disease, I kept thinking, this is my cousin's disease. I had had a cousin who must have been about five years older than me, and he died when he was about 16 years of age. But the symptoms of the disease, as this doctor was describing, fit him very well. That's the first time I actually knew something about what sickle cell disease uh, might be. So he was a cousin. So sickle cell disease obviously was in at least part of my family, but I never related it to myself because I didn't understand the genetics of it where very well as a college student. My own personal story of sickle cell disease started the same year, in 1968. Even though I was in college in the U.S., I was a member of the Ghana uh, Olympic track team that was supposed to be going to Mexico City for the Olympic Games. And that year, the International Olympic Committee had invited South Africa. So all the African countries were boycotting the Olympics. So actually, I had come back uh, on campus from New York where I was training uh, during the summer. My team manager at Yale, who was an orthopedic doctor, told me that he had heard that there was some concern being expressed by sports medicine doctors that athletes going to the Olympics who have sickle cell traits, may have problems. And so he thought I should be tested for it. I didn't even know exactly what sickle cell trait meant. I mean, here I was healthy doing all this. I knew it wasn't something that would make me sick. But that's when I got tested and I found out that I had sickle cell traits. I didn't go to the Olympics, but at least I found out that I had sickle cell traits. 
And a year later, the young woman that I had met, uh, she was a student at Cornell, and we were getting serious. Um, you know, she thought that she too had been screened because in the 60s now, uh, through the Black Panther Party and other uh, African-American organizations, people were talking about sickle cell, sickle cell. So some of the campuses, people were being screened. And she thought that at, at Cornell, she, may, she had been tested. She wasn't sure. Uh, and so we assumed that she probably didn't have sickle cell uh, trait, even though, to be honest, it didn't really figure out in our decision-making about getting married at all. It was just some, something in the, in the background. But when we got married, it's when and we we talked to uh, a doctor at, at Yale, Howard Pearson was his name. Uh, he was head of hematology, and he had become quite famous because he had been working with children with sickle cell disease and discovered how they died from infection. And so he was talking about the fact that if you couldn't cure sickle cell disease, you should be able to treat the infection. So find those children and and give them protection against infection. So when uh, we became pregnant, uh, we went to talk to him. This is after the fact. And he confirmed that, in fact, uh, my wife also had sickle cell trait. So he said, well, we have to wait until the baby is born and we will find out. So when my son was born in uh, May 1972, he was tested uh, for sickle cell disease at birth. Well, I had no idea that he was the first baby to be tested as a newborn at Yale. The Yale program launched in June 1972. It was completely not part of my knowledge at all. It didn't make me think that I would become a sickle cell doctor. It was two years later, but I came to Ghana in 1974 when he was two years old to do work for my thesis. Uh, Yale required medical students at the time to do a thesis for your degree. So I came to Ghana, and I was in Kumasi, the city where I had gone to school. And I wanted to find out, going back 10 years, what children had been admitted to the hospital for. Because, you know, I had left without really knowing a lot about child health. So this was an opportunity for me to actually be thinking about what the problems are and what I could specialize in that would be useful in Ghana. And I noticed something in the hospital where I was working, the second largest hospital in Ghana still is, that there were very few patients, children who came into the hospital with sickle cell disease. So here I had this two-year-old boy, I'm not reading so much about sickle cell disease. And in Ghana, there were so few children being admitted to the hospital. So I asked the head of pediatrics, why are there so few children? And he said, it's because we don't test them for sickle cell disease. So the children who are dying from pneumonia or dying from diarrhea, other infections, many of them may have sickle cell disease, but we don't test for it. And I said, wow, here I am in a place in the world where they screen my child as a newborn and has been taking penicillin for two years. And I'm in Ghana and the disease is supposed to be common in Africans and we don't even know who has it. So when I returned to the U.S. uh, and finished Yale, it was always at the back of my mind that now this is what I should do. Now, the person that actually convinced me to go into sickle cell disease was my mother. When she heard that my son has this disease, she didn't understand it, but she knew my cousin who had passed away. And that's why I was saying that he has the same disease as my cousin who passed away. And he said, well, she is religious. So she said, this is God. It's trying to tell you what you should do with your life as a doctor. So when I came back, I was basically looking into changing uh, uh, from my interest in infectious diseases initially to hematology. That's how I ended up going to hematology. 
Yep. Do you have any tips for parents that first learn now of their child having the illness? I, I hope that by now, for all the work that has been done in the United States and UK and other places, that doctors and nurses now know that sickle cell disease in a child is not a death sentence, particularly if you are born in a place like the United States where we've been screening all babies born in that country since 2006 and know what to do for them. Um, being born and knowing from birth that your baby has sickle cell disease is now one that is just calling upon you as a mother or a father to gather all your resources, emotional strength and everything to take care of a child who's going to depend on you maybe a little more than your other children. But it's no longer a case where you think your baby is going to die on you very soon because now more than 95% of children born in the United States, Canada, uh, France, UK, live past 20 years of age. So you need, as a parent, to just ask yourself and your doctor, what can I learn to do for my child? What can I do to keep my child as healthy as possible? It is unfortunately not so in developing countries, especially in Africa, where the disease is so common. Because here, most pe- children who die from sickle cell disease are actually not diagnosed because there's, we're just beginning newborn screening. So here, 80% of the babies born in the world with sickle cell disease are born in Africa, but we don't have newborn screening for most of them. And so at a very young age, when the parents don't know that it's sickle cell disease that actually killed them. So many children in Africa that are counted as malaria deaths actually sickle cell disease because they die very much like young children dying from malaria. They get a short episode of fever. And, you know, in much of West Africa, if you go to a pharmacy and you say, I have fever or my child has fever, they'll give you malaria medicine. The word fever has become synonymous with malaria. And so everybody thinks that if a child has fever, they may have malaria. But often these children have bacterial infection that will kill them. And so here we are losing 50 to 80 percent of them in the first five years of life. And just a plane ride to another part of the world, 95 percent of them are living past 20 years of age. So there's great disparity between um, Africa and other developing countries in the Caribbean where uh, management of sickle cell disease is still quite rudimentary. Big difference between how those children would do versus how a child born in the U.S. Uh, would do. So our work is to try to bring the same level of care that has been around now for 30, 35 years in developed countries, try and see whether we can develop the same programs in, in Africa and Caribbean and other places. What are some of the complications that you see um, patients that have sickle cell disease, whether it's adults or children with the illness? Well, as you know, as I said, this is actually an ancient disease. And so people actually have lived with this for a very long time, but they didn't know that it was a blood disease. So it is known as a disease that causes pain. Some of them will know that it's a disease that can also make your eyes very yellow. It can make you quite skinny. You get sick from time to time, but pain is the number one symptom that people associate with sickle cell disease everywhere in the world. And so... In traditional um, parts of the world where there was no microscopy to know that this is a blood cell and this is where the disease comes from, all the names for sickle cell disease describe a disease that causes pain frequently. So they've known that for a very long time. 
by the two-year-old or one-year-old who hasn't established that pattern of pain, they wouldn't even think about it. And that child can die. Nobody would think that had anything to do with the survivors who are going through this painful period. So pain is number one. And I think that anytime we're talking about doing something about sickle cell disease, people think what we should be addressing is the pain part of it. But the pain is excruciating, as patients will tell you, and it's very important. But what we are losing these children for is infections. And saving the life of a child is not because you give them pain medicine, but it's because you diagnose their sickle cell disease and protected them with antibiotics very quickly. But as you know, this blood goes everywhere and every organ in a person with sickle cell disease can be damaged by sickle cells. So the lung disease from sickle cell disease is in many uh, developed countries the leading cause of death. People don't even associate their lungs as being part of sickle cell disease. But sickle cells damage the lungs, give you a very acute illness. And if you're not in the right place where they understand your condition and give you aggressive treatment, you can die from it. Um, the heart can fail in sickle cell disease in the older populations. Uh, every organ in the body. The spleen is the first one that we lose. They lose it in the first year of life. That's why they become so susceptible to infection. So many, many, many organs in sickle cell disease get damaged. Those who are able to survive longer are able to show the longest um, organ damage of the disease. So the kidneys failing, people needing dialysis or dying from kidney failure. Um, the heart fading. Now we know that sickle cell patients as they age can develop heart failure. All of those things we are seeing in the longer survivors. But for the early part of, of life, most of the problems we're dealing with relate to the infection. They get pain as young children, but um, it's not something that is going to kill, uh, kill them. Now we have ways to protect them. There are special immunizations that they get they're, they're taking the antibiotics, at least in the first five years of life. We know how to use blood transfusions to manage some of the complications and prevent some of them. And so if, if you're in a place where all these preventive measures are available, children with sickle cell disease, most of them we know they'll grow to become adults. They're doing well. They've gone to college. With many of them are employed. A few of them, because of sometimes family circumstances or where they happen to be, uh, may not be able to take advantage of what we know now. And as you know, there is no cure for sickle cell disease. Not for everyone, but there is it's possible to cure sickle cell disease through bone marrow transplantation if you have a donor and you're in part of the world where it can be done. But that is only for very few people at the moment. For the lung issues that you mentioned for the complications, is that more common yes. with SS or is it more common with SC? It is more common with SS. Uh, almost all the complications, except for two of them, are more common with SS because SS, they have more anemia and they have more of the blocking of blood flow or what we call this occlusion com com uh, complications. But there are two special problems. One is the eye. The inner part of the eye that we call retina has some very special blood vessels there. Sometimes sickle cells will clog up those blood vessels and cause damage uh, to the retina. That is quite common in those who are SC, a little more common in SC than it is in SS. Also, a problem that uh, can develop with the hip, the hip bones, the head of the hip bones tend to break down over time. That is common in all types of sickle cell disease, but even as mild as SC can be, 
they can also have that commonly we call it a vascular necrosis or a septic necrosis it's really bone damage and bone death um, that then make the round head of these bones become flattened and cause a lot of pain uh, in patients so different types may have slightly different uh, occurrence of some of the complications SC is much milder than SS for most people with SC but there will be an occasional SC who has had a severe course just as there are many with SS who have not had as severe a course as one would predict. And we are trying to understand what the differences are. Some of them we know must be genetic, that they've inherited something else that is making their disease milder. And if we could understand it well, we could take advantage of what it is that they have inherited and what change that has caused in their body, that if we were able to cause that change or use medicine to create that change, maybe to make all the severe ones also milder. But there are differences. As a physician, what are some of the main, I guess, five tips that you would have for patients that you see or some advice that you usually give to different patients that you see on a regular basis? I think the um, most important thing, you need to prepare yourself to either take care of yourself as an adult person or a teenager, education, either for yourself as a patient or for your child as a parent is key. There are not a lot that can make your sickle cell disease go away, but simple things like keeping yourself well hydrated, uh, keeping yourself from getting chilled. You know, say summer day, everybody's hot and jumping in the pool, but if the pool water is very cold, uh, somebody who has sickle cell disease may swim in the pool and do okay but they may learn that four or five hours later they're actually having pain because your outside being chilled has changed the way blood flows in your body to the point where you are beginning to clog up more blood blood vessels. So these are simple things. Your sickle cell disease is not going away, but if you learn some of these things, you can keep yourself from getting sick frequently. Whatever medications that have been prescribed, certainly for the young children, not giving your child penicillin when the child is supposed to be getting penicillin. It just doesn't make sense because this cheap, ordinary antibiotic is what is keeping your child alive and not getting an infection that can kill your child within hours. And so just the penicillin and whatever other vitamins and other medications have been added, making sure that you stick with it. And also learning some of the warning signs. For instance, we talked about the chest and the lungs. Most often that is associated with a little bit, starts with a little bit of chest pain. A teenage person who is busy with school or a college student who is busy with school may think, ah, this is nothing. I know it hurts a little bit when we breathe, but I have homework to do, so I want to finish that. And then it starts getting worse. And often by the time they get to a hospital, a minor complication that could have been interrupted now has become a major uh, problem that needs to be dealt with. Many of the major complications of sickle cell disease, there's nothing the person could have done to prevent it. All you hope is that when that occurred, you are at a place where they can quickly help you manage that problem. So you, you can only be at that place if you've made your regular visits and the doctors know you very well. So any change that occurs in you, the doctors will say that, oh, we know him. When he was here last month, his blood count was today. It has changed to this and this and that. So we can begin to consider what the problem may be. 
for any person with sickle cell disease who just walks into a hospital very sick where they don't know him, your life could actually be at risk because they have no reference as to what you have. And I'll give you a simple example. We've been talking about SS and SC. A person with SC has a hemoglobin level that's about 10, 11 most of the time. A person with SS has hemoglobin level that's around 7 to 8. So if a person with SC showed up with the emergency room and was sick, and the hemoglobin was 6, if you didn't know that he was SC, you would think, well, maybe he's an SS patient who normally has 7, 8, and he's only dropped to 6. So your consideration for what may be the problem would be different. But if you knew that he's SC, or he could tell you that he's SC, and his hemoglobin had dropped from 11 to 6, half of his blood is already destroyed. So what you think about and what you need to do as an emergency is very different because you know that person very well. You know their condition is different from somebody else's type of sickle cell disease. So these sort of things that will make doctors and nurses be able to respond to your complications faster are also important. They will only know that if you go to your regular visits when you're not sick so they can do all these tests to keep a very good record of where you are when you're well, so that when you're not sick, I mean, when you're sick, they can tell the difference and manage you appropriately. Uh, I don't want to ever give patients the impression that they got sick because they didn't do something. In fact, as I said, most of the major complications of sickle cell disease, they just seem to happen. Uh, or they're happening slowly and they'll get to a certain point that your kidney is failing. And, and so about 80% of the time when a person with sickle cell disease passes away, dies, a month before that, their doctor would not have predicted that the person's life was in danger. Even a week before that, they may not have been able to do that. So some things can happen suddenly. And if you're not at the right place under the right uh, kind of medical circumstances, it may cause death. But keeping yourself healthy as much as you can engaging yourself in activities, um, things that boost your self-image um, so that you're confident, all of those things add to your uh, general well-being. But it is still a serious disease for which you need well-established medical centers and medical services to manage. I think that's what makes the disease so complex. I know for me, I had the luxury of going to CHOP where all the physicians and nurses knew something about sickle cell disease. And so when I went off to go to college and as I traveled, um, did study abroad programs, that was one of the downfalls is that trying to find a physician that knew something about sickle cell disease, but also not just know something about sickle cell disease, but knew about latest news, research, treatments, advances that are taking place. And at first what I did was I started to look at hematologists and then um, that kind of narrowed down the pool a little bit. And then when I didn't find a hematologist that really could provide quality care, I found a family physician that was well-versed about sickle cell disease just because he had people in his family that had the illness. And so that was one of the things that I've learned is like, I don't necessarily need to look for hematologists. I just need to look for somebody that that's well-versed about sickle cell disease. That is very good. Most sickle cell patients, even in America, are not cared for by hematologists. They're cared for by general internists and pediatricians. And so they can do an excellent job. They just need to maybe spend a little more time 
because they have, you know, a few sickle cell patients in their in their practice, just a little bit of time to read a little bit about some of the new things that is being uh, being done in sickle cell disease, so that they can keep up with it. Um, but we cannot have enough hematologists uh, for all the sickle cell patients, even in the United States. You can imagine. A country of Ghana has 27 million people, and right now we have working in the country one pediatric hematologist and about 10 adult hematologists. And here we have 15,000 babies born a year with sickle cell disease. Most of them are not going to be taken care of by hematologists. So we have to teach the primary care physicians and nurses uh, to be able to uh, manage sickle cell disease. It cannot be only in the big uh, research medical centers. It has to be at every hospital because the patients are everywhere. As the president of the Sickle Cell Foundation of Ghana, watch your latest partnership that you have um, to make medicine more affordable and also accessible. So when we formed the foundation in 2004, we had started the newborn screening program in 1993. And we started it with, with research funding. But we knew the research funding was going to end in 2008 and that we needed uh, internally a strong advocacy group to convince government to continue the screening without foreign uh, funding. So we founded the foundation to be a program development uh, organization. We have a sister organization, which is the National Patient Support Group. So we are actually partners. So we started trying to convince government that there are things that can be done in sickle cell disease, newborn screening, establishing more clinics, um, paying for the antibiotics and all those things, uh, and to also governize the population. So a lot of educational uh, programs for doctors and nurses and also for the uh, families and patients who are affected. But I think much of our attention has come from our efforts to bring foreign attention to sickle cell disease. So we have partners all over Africa trying to do the same thing, trying to convince uh, World Health Organization, Gates Foundation, uh, and some of the pharmaceutical companies to try and have interest, develop interest in sickle cell disease, if not even from a profit-making motive because we're not buying a lot of things that you know they'll make a lot of money from. But to just say that this is a scientifically a very, very important disease uh, the things that we have learned to do for people with sickle cell uh, disease have benefited other diseases. So if you spend some resources uh, either studying sickle cell disease or developing treatment for sickle cell disease, other diseases might benefit from it. So it has led us um, to find you know, partners elsewhere, but also internally. we The big corporations in the country, we ask them to help us. One of them is building a sickle cell center that is not being funded by government. It's, being, it's a private, you know, activity. Uh, there would be the second largest uh, sickle cell center in the country. But Novartis, uh, which is the largest drug company in the world, in the last almost 20 years has actually been working with us on a small-scale basis. We organize these conferences every five years, and both in the U.S. and in Ghana, here at least, they've always given us some educational grants. But in 2014 is when we started developing a stronger relationship with them. We started writing these guidelines, and a team from Novartis chose sickle cell disease as their uh, own choice of charity. 
and they wanted to do something in Africa and they picked Ghana. Just happened to pick Ghana because they heard I was doing something there. Just luck, out of luck. And they decided to support the development of the guidelines. So Novartis became a partner in de- development of guidelines because they came to Ghana, met with a lot of doctors and nurses, and they left with the impression that people are doing different things in different parts of the country, different hospitals are managing sickle cell disease without any um, guide per se. And so we started developing the guidelines after them, and now we finished the guidelines and I'm going to do the uh, field testing. We also had asked them to make, help me make an app for the newborn screening program so that instead of the nurses uh, filling forms on the baby they've uh, screened, that they can actually use mobile phone applications to quickly enter the information and the lab will receive the information even before the sample re- uh, got there. So they were working with us on the app, which has been finished and has been deployed. But last year, 2018, Novartis um, appointed a new CEO, a young guy who was 41 at the time, who had very strong interest in sickle cell disease. And he committed Novartis to do more in sickle cell disease because he thought it was a disease for which in developed countries, so much was being done. Patients were being cured of sickle cell disease. Gene therapy was being developed. But then in another part of the world where most of the patients are born, we are still, we can't even screen them to do ordinary penicillin. So from February 2018 till now, Novartis picked Ghana because we already had a little relationship with them. They picked Ghana as the starting point of the major uh, effort that they want to make in disease. So you may have heard that in January at the World Economic Forum, Ghana signed a memorandum of understanding with uh, Novartis uh, to do a number of things. One of them is expanding the number of sickle cell centers, expanding newborn screening to all those centers, and then uh, the training of doctors and nurses for those centers as part of the package. And a very special uh, problem that we had placed with them was that here was a simple drug, hydroxyurea, very old drug, that is being used all over the world for sickle cell disease, but Africa where we need it, only about less than 1% of the people that need to take hydroxyurea in Africa are taking it. And so uh, they decided that even though they were not making hydroxyurea as one of their drugs, because it's generic, that they will make hydroxyurea for Africa. And I'm happy to say that they actually applied for special license for hydroxyurea in Ghana. And so Ghana is the only country in, in Africa right now that actually has specifically, the, the FDA in Ghana has specifically licensed hydroxyurea for sickle cell disease. And we just received our first consignment of Novartis produced hydroxyurea in Ghana about five weeks ago. So we are embarking on a, a program that will become a large scale program to get thousands of sickle cell patients to take hydroxyurea. As you know, that drug is now in the United States. It's actually recommended for all children with sickle cell disease SS. In the past, we were only giving the drug to those who have had problems that we thought were significant enough to try to prevent them from getting them again. But now in the U.S., in other countries, in Jamaica, in the U.K., in France, hydroxyurea for young children is now standard care. And that's the sort of program that we are embarking on in Ghana. We had our first major workshop to train doctors and nurses and pharmacists in March. 
and uh, the pilot is starting right now. In September, we expect a very large consignment of hydroxyurea that will be able to treat about 10,000 patients for a year from Novartis. And and so it's it's not completely free, but it's about half the price of what is on the market in Ghana. Now, we are now trying to convince the government of Ghana, starting from the president, for the national health insurance to pay for hydroxyurea for sickle cell patients. So if we, are, if we do our work well and we get support from government, beyond that September, uh, Ghanaians uh, may not buy uh, hydroxyurea. Congratulations. That's a big step. Thank you so much. I said, say, you know, I lost my son uh, when he was 40 years old, but I've always said that all the children with sickle cell disease in the world are my children. And so we have to take care of all of them, uh, just like we did with Kwame. So the work is never done, and I'm very grateful uh, for your kind words. But as you know, it's we're just beginning. If people wanted to get more information about the Sickle Cell Foundation of Ghana, what are ways that they can donate, help, or support in any way? I think uh, for now, um, people cannot really send us money. I will say that if those who are in the United States want to help us, they should contact Children's Hospital of Philadelphia or just a hospital and say the sickle cell program in Ghana. They know exactly what that means. Okay. I just again want to express my gratitude. Here we are approaching World Sickle Cell Day next month. And I think that all of us should join in making people aware of sickle cell disease because our work uh, in front of us is very huge. And, and uh, we need to try and deal with it. Yes. Thank so you so much June for the 19th. opportunity. Yes, it's well sickle cell day. This is the 10th anniversary, so everybody should try and double their efforts to make it even greater. I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Sickle Cycle Podcast.